Welcome to Iteration, a weekly podcast about programming, development, and design through the lens of amazing books, chapter by chapter. So, JP, you have a little bit of news. You don't have a job right now. I am currently unemployed for the next two weeks until I start at my new job at Open Listings, which is a YC startup, in fact. And I didn't even know that like some people actually knew about Open Listings. Maybe they're getting targeted ads or something, but I've told a people told a couple people at like my CrossFit gym and they were like, oh, I've heard of open listings, blah, 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 blah. And I was like, oh, shoot, maybe, (laughs) maybe I'm the one living under a shell. (laughs) I had definitely heard of them when you were telling me about like getting an interview and interested in working there. I definitely heard of them before, but I like didn't know exactly what they did. I was like, aren't they like a Zillow copy or something like that? Which is kind of true, but that's only a small piece of it. And also they're just not Mm. ugly ass janky site. I know their design is amazing. And I got to, in my interview, I got to talk to whoever is in charge of like UI and UX. So that was really cool, actually. I was like, I love your site. It's amazing. (laughs) Hire me, please. (laughs) That's awesome. So you start in two weeks. And so what are you doing in the meantime? I am just trying to brush up on my Ruby and my JavaScript. You know, there's nothing like hammering in the fundamentals. And I like talk about that way too much, probably more than I should. But I think there's something to say about just like really learning a language in and out. You know, because you can spend time making as many to-do apps as you want or many as, as many crud blog apps as you want. But there's nothing like really just understanding what all of the features of a language are. And so that's what I've been doing. I've been, I finally covered a cover red pooter, a good, some good old Sandy Metz pooter, you know. Practical object-oriented design in Ruby. I still haven't made it all the way through that book. I've just been so busy. It's it's so stupid. I'm so jealous that you have literally like two weeks to go deep on code. It's awesome. Yeah. And the reason I say finally is because I would always re- read the first seven chapters and skip the last chapter on testing. And, <laughs> and so I finally made it all the way through. And I don't know why I've been skipping it because the last chapter, I think it's chapter eight on testing is like so good. Um Really, just it really, you should read. You should read the whole thing all the way through. I'd highly recommend. I will. It's definitely moving it up my priority list because it's definitely one I need to go through. All the bits and pieces I've read of it are so good, and the little bit I've incorporated is awesome. And anything that comes out of Sandy Metz is just like solid gold. The goose that lays the golden eggs. Yeah, and I've also read this little small book called Mastering Ruby Closures. I just have a bunch of Ruby books on my desk, and this one's cool because this one's about like anonymous functions, and I've been using them way more than I probably should be. But every time you have a block, I just throw that shit in a Lambda and I'm like, I feel cool for doing that. (laughs) Nice, nice. Cool, well that's exciting stuff for you, man. And it's awesome that in your first week off, you've gone through two books on Ruby. So you have uh, one, another week left? Two weeks left, including this week. Oh, dang. So literally that was your first weekend. You've torn through two books. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I was reading a little bit before that while I, my last like week at the job, but uh, you know, you know how that goes. <laughs> sure. Fair enough. <laughs> um, I know we wanted to talk about stubs and mocks for a second before we jumped into the... Yeah. So we were talking, I, I have a project that heavily relies on some APIs, AWS for file upload, and I'm doing some fancy logic there on some file upload stuff and Stripe. And it's so hard to do like integration style testing or even unit style testing on an API endpoint. And I'm not like testing whether or not AWS is working. I don't think there's much reason to do that because, you know, it may go down, but like if they're going to change their APIs, generally they let me know and there's not much I can do about it. And some people like believe you should test all endpoints. I don't necessarily like AWS has their shit together. 
I probably don't, which is actually something we'll talk about this week. But what I would like to test is like the way I'm responding to the, what that API is giving me and how that affects the user interface and how that affects my backend. And so I have been really struggling to get my head around kind of stubs and mocks, the differences and how I can use some of that. And JP has promised me some, some fresh, fresh cabbagey tips. <laughs> so I'm going to explain them first in the context of how I use them in React, because I think testing JavaScript is really sort of, I don't know, for some reason it just, I, I, it like clicked what like stubs and mocks are used for. And so I'm going to try to go through why I use them because you hear all these weird things when you, when you first jump into testing, for example, stop, stubs, mocks, doubles. And I think there's five other terms that all mean the same thing. But for me, the way I like to think of it is a stub is basically when you need to stub something out. For example, let's say I have a React component and this component requires that I pass in three properties. One that's an integer, one that's a string, and one that's a Boolean. And so this component relies on these three pieces of data. Without these three pieces of data, it it won't it won't be able to render to the to the browser, right? Sure. Okay. But when I test this React component and I like import it into my testing file, it still needs those three things. So I have to create like fake data in order for this component to render correctly. So I, I'll create like a fake string, I'll create a fake number, and I'll create a fake Boolean. And then I'll pass these fake pieces of data to my component in order for the test to even um, compile correctly. So that th those three pieces of fake data are what I would like, what I would consider like a stub because um, you're sort of, I don't want to say mocking functionality, but you're like creating a fake object. It's like a test double or like yeah. a, you've heard the word double. I think double and stub, someone correct me if I'm wrong, but I think double and stub can be used interchangeably. And so think of it as a, um, just a fake object. Yeah, in order I think for some of the to... stuff I already do, because in some senses, like that is like a fixture or a YAML file where it's like, uh -huh. it doesn't necessarily mimic behavior. It's just giving you the data to be able to render the component onto the screen. Or, exactly. And in practice, that really looks like a little string of JSON in general, right? At least for JavaScript testing. Yeah, or it could just be set into a variable. I might create sure, three- yeah. Actually hard code a variable, sure. Exactly, exactly. So I might create three variables each for those instances, pass those three variables to my component, and then it's going to be able to render to the screen. And then I can make assertions of whether or not it rendered correctly. Um, so that's what I, that's what a stub is. Mocks are a little different. Someone on Stack Overflow says a mock is a smarter stub, but that doesn't really necessarily make sense to me. Um, the way I use mocks personally is, let's say I have a component, and this component makes an API call. Right. And so the difference is, is that when we're talking about um, stubs in this previous example, of this component is that this is sort of a like dumb component. It just takes in three different pieces of data and then renders that to the screen. Right. But it doesn't do anything else. It just takes data and displays something. But let's say I have a smarter component and this component makes an API call. You don't actually want to make that API call in your tests. Right. So what you would do is you would mock that. So let's say I, I create a fake function that mocks this API call. And this mock is smart in the sense that you can write what you expect the response to be. So let's say right. I make a fake API call. This is my mock. And I say um, the mock is going to return a status of 200 with, a, with an array of four, four objects. 
And so you actually write these four objects out, this array out, and you actually write like the response 200. And then so you can pass in this fake API call to your component. And now your component's now going to be able to like actually run within the test suite instead of actually making the API call. Because imagine if you had tons of these components and you're making tons of API calls, your tests are going to be like super, super slow because, you know, it takes some amount of time for an actual API call to resolve versus like a fake API call, which just like happens instantaneously. Yeah, especially when you're like testing a bunch of different cases, like even around a Git endpoint, it's like, oh, I should get these kind of objects. I should get these kind of objects. I should get these kind of objects. And it's like, instead of hitting a real endpoint each time, you can just have a different method or, you know, structure the mock in a way that just quickly returns it all back in the array in whatever format that your component or whatever's consuming the API would need. And that makes perfect sense. I totally get that piece of it. And, you know, you can be somewhat, I'm sure that you only want to mock things that you can be very confident aren't going to change. And if they do change, you need to update your mocks, which is like kind of where the world of things like VCR come in, at least in the Ruby world, which is like it's recording this endpoint and then replaying it locally in a way that's mocking the real world, but it's actually duplicating what's out there. And I, I got my head around that and your explanation helped it a little bit more. But where I really struggle to test things well is on the feature test side of things. Okay. So like the capybara style or whatever type of style you want to call it, where it's like clicks this, clicks this, selects this, uploads this. And I do have integrations with APIs that run in those instances. And so I guess where I struggle is how to pull in those mocks into my stack in a way that I can functionally test it, but it doesn't affect my production environments. Okay, so when you do things like a cop- capybara, like click this, fill in this, right. um, wait for page load, and then make some expectation, those I think are more of like end-to-end tests. So you're, mm-hmm. you're exactly. testing- Exactly, like feature-style testing. Exactly, I don't th- and, and you wouldn't necessarily use a mock or a stub for something like that. I think for those feature tests, or sorry, for those end-to-end tests, you kind of expect them to take like a longer time because you're actually simulating a real-world experience. Um, so I would maybe not even use mocks or stubs and just rely on like actual real data, you know, being requested and sent. Whereas you might use something, you might use like a mock and a stub for, you know, unit tests or integration tests. Yeah, that's a good point. And maybe it's something that I'm just trying to force and I shouldn't. Mm-hmm. But, you know, my test suite probably takes it's upwards of eight minutes now. And it's Oof. like I struggle, you know, and it's fine for the most part. That's not terrible. I mean, I've talked to people whose test suites take 45 minutes or hours, <laughs> even on CLI. So it's like I understand that my pain is minimal. Um but I would like that to run faster. And I just like, I keep reading about these best practices for testing and trying to push myself more toward that. And it's like never test against real API endpoints. You should always be able to turn off your Wi-Fi and all your tests be green. And I don't think there's a way, at least practically that I've found that's kind of the best practice out there. And please correct us if um, I'm wrong, but I don't think there's a way to mock API endpoints within like an end-to-end or a feature test I don't think there's a way to do that well without heavily modifying, you know, your actual API endpoints. Because the only documentation I've seen for this is someone who actually like interrupts and does a switch on the environment in the actual like API service object. Interesting. So like you can, let's say I have a Stripe service object and I can say like, if my environment is this, then call these methods. If my environment is this, call these methods. And that just didn't feel right to me um, because it's actually like in my model, in my service object for my production code, this switch on environment. And I just try to avoid that kind of a thing. 
But I think it's still a productive conversation and I definitely appreciate the tips. And I think ultimately I just need to let this go and be okay with my current test strategy, I think. And maybe for those other things, try to test my API endpoints more with unit style tests instead of this end-to-end. I rely way too heavily on these end-to-end feature style testing. Just as me, it's like, I don't have a QA person or a front-end person. I'm oftentimes the full stack. And so I like the idea that I know a button isn't going to disappear because whether or not it works on the back end isn't always proof that it's working in practice for my user. Like ultimately, it doesn't matter if this upload functionality is working perfectly from a unit testing standpoint, if, you know, I accidentally hid the button. (laughs) It's like that straightforward of like making sure that everything's rendering all the way through and all the functions are operating perfectly. Um, You know, and I just think that that's probably a, an approach in my testing I need to mature on, I think. Yeah, totally. Capybara, man. <laughs> yeah, I'm using mini test Capybara and it, it's it's not great. I, I'm trying to find a better... I feel like in general, the Rails testing stack is a little bit behind what's out there and a little bit antiquated in the way that... I feel like it relies very heavily on feature tests <laughs> and you'd like that end-to-end kind of feature test or like unit. Like there isn't a lot of middle ground as far as like how that exactly falls. And I think it's just a matter of me continuing to mature in my testing and making sure I have good coverage. I think that's part of it. Yeah, there's this really cool tool and I'm pretty sure you could use it with anything. It's called Cypress IO and it's a really good tool for end-to-end tests. And I think in fact, I think the creators, I think in their like opening launch or release of it, they showed how to um, end-to-end test like the Apple website. And so like you don't even need to hook it up to anything. Um, you literally write, I think there's, I think it has its own DSL, not yeah, unlike Copybara. And yeah. so you can literally end-to-end test anything because it will just, you know, simulate clicks and then you'll wait for yeah. things to load and then you'll make assertions and then you can like end-to-end test anything. It is really cool. And I did play with it a little bit. Um, the thing that's really painful is I have to rewrite all my tests. Yeah. But the thing that, yeah, and that's the part that's painful. But I mean, that's not the end of the world, actually. And it also, you can just start writing new tests in that and just kind of migrate over time, which is great. It doesn't replace your test suite. They're, they're very open in that approach, which I really appreciated. Uh, and I do love the idea that you're testing the full stack. So someone who is not the best JavaScript developer ever, it's like, it's nice to be able to know that I can write JavaScript, have it render on the screen, have uh, Cypress actually click through that rendered JavaScript and everything is working on the full stack. And they're doing some trickery. I don't know whether they multi-thread or what, but they run a lot faster than my Capybara tests. The couple, because I like, I wrote some out in Cypress and I definitely A-B'd it and they're faster in Cypress. Cause I'm like, I don't want to rewrite a whole new DSL and rewrite my tests if I'm not getting a lot of extra functionalities and features, especially because Cypress is a private company, even though it's open source, like they do have, they are charging you money at a certain point at a certain tier of testing, which is, is fine. I have no problem with that. But if I'm not going to rely on something that's open source, I want to make sure that like, and I'm writing language, writing a lot of DSL that's going to be dependent on it. You know, at any time they could be like, okay, our free tiers are, you know, way lower and we're charging way more. And so it's like, I get reluctant, especially as like, a freelance full stack developer. Like I pay for so many things from <laughs> browser stack to just like so many different things to test all these different things. And there's just a lot of monthly fees. And I try to limit what I can, where I can just, I mean, my Heroku bills alone are over $400 a month. Oof. It's like small, small chunk of rent. <laughs> it's a lot. Like that's a nice car payment. <laughs> 
Oh, man. Shall we start discussing the book? Yeah, that sounds good. So let's jump into chapter three, part two. Um, This is more talking about kind of the basic tools of development and being a pragmatic programmer. (laughs) Do you want to help me introduce this chapter? I'm struggling, JP. Sure, 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 sure. So right now we're just talking about the tools a developer uses. I love that these titles are really self-explanatory. They're not they're not cryptic at all. <laughs> so today we're going to be going over four little tips and I'll go through them right now before we go ahead and discuss them. So one is select isn't broken. And so this has to do with debugging. Two is don't assume it, prove it. Three is learn a text manipulation language. And the last one is write code that writes code. And so uh, let's just talk about the first one, which is select isn't broken. And so this section or this tip had um, had broken down a, a lot of different debugging strategies. I'm sure most of which you guys are probably already aware of. Some of them are literally just going through, taking the time and trying to follow the stack trace. And there's also something called rubber ducking. I'm not sure if you've heard of it. I think there's, I think people have different definitions for rubber ducking. So rubber ducking from, from what I understand, I think is a little bit different from what the book says. But from what I understand, rubber ducking is literally having like a rubber duck on your desk and trying to explain the code um, try to like walk through your own code so that you can understand it better. Because it turns out that most of the time when you're explaining your code to somebody, just the mere process of explaining it, oftentimes you'll understand like, oh, this is probably where it's breaking. And so even just talking out loud and speaking to like a, a, an inanimate object can sometimes help. Yeah, I love rubber ducking. I do it all the time and I do it with my dog. So I work from home. My dog's like always under my desk and my wife makes fun of me because she'll hear me talking to the dog. Like, I'm like, okay, buddy, you know, and I actually, I try to start as like low or high level as possible. Like, okay, there's HTML being rendered on the page. (laughs) This button is here. This button is hitting this endpoint. That endpoint goes to this controller. And like, I talk through the entire stack. And especially when you're working out like a really nuanced problem, It's funny because also, even when talking with clients, they'll ask me if something's possible or easy or cheap. Like, that's the classic question. Mm -hmm. How easy it is to do this? (laughs) And I feel like oftentimes I'll be explaining why something is really difficult, and I'll realize an easy approach in telling them why it's difficult. Like, I'm telling someone why something isn't possible, and in telling someone why it's not possible, realize, oh, well, I could do this. And then I end my sentence with, well, never mind. I'll get back to you. But I think I might have just found a way in telling you why this isn't possible. That's funny. I feel like that happens weekly for me. <laughs> yeah. Okay. But the actual tip or the actual point of the whole oh, idea yeah. of debugging is that you shouldn't blame external factors. In fact, it's probably your code that's broken. So like, let's say you had you brought in Let's say you brought in Bootstrap, and for some reason the, the the JavaScript functionality that you're supposed to pull in from Bootstrap is not working. You shouldn't be like, oh, it's because you know the jQuery popper.js thing is like broken, and you shouldn't like blame external factors, or you shouldn't look to solve external factors first. You should look at your own code, and you know maybe like swallow your pride a little bit and think like, okay, what am I doing wrong, and not look to external factors until like the very end where you're like, okay, I've looked through every possible scenario. So maybe, just maybe, it's not my fault. (laughs) Yeah, I think that this is a really important one. And the actual tip is, quote, select 
isn't broken, unquote. And so they were talking through like this one example where this Java developer was so struggling and he was blaming just like the actual dot select in Java. Uh And he's like, oh, definitely there's a bug within that select (laughs) function. It's like this method is being run millions of times every method, every second in the world, literally like millions of times a second, this method is being run. Um, And it was for weeks he was blaming the idea that select had this bug in it that was broken in this way. And it was like two weeks of him wasting his time trying to prove that select was broken and he literally like forgot a piece of syntax somewhere deep in the code so it's like you know a stray comma or you know a a stray tab or whatever that was actually breaking the code and i remember when i was a more junior dev like the first time i did a stripe integration i had like the stripe api console up and i was like trying to commit it and i was like look there's nothing in the logs stripes down i was like they say they're up and they're down and it's like I realize my immaturity now. It's like to to accuse a multi-million dollar startup of lying on their status page <laughs> because I can't get something to commit to their API because I like didn't have my head around whatever JavaScript library I was using at the time to write that. And it really is important that you stop, you rubber duck, you kind of trace what that thing is. And I really like this quote from the book. It's quote, you must realize that one of more, one or more of your assumptions is wrong. <laughs> so it's like, assume that you have something that you're thinking is wrong. Assume one of your fundamental assumptions is wrong. And that leads really great into the next, next tip, which is don't assume it, prove it. And this is the idea of just like proving what you know to be true. So if you're so confident that XYZ couldn't happen, write some tests and prove that it couldn't happen. And then you'll probably see really quickly that it can happen and you'll be proved really wrong really quickly because one of your assumptions is often wrong when there's bugs coming in. Yeah. And so this tip also, um, it also touches on the, the fact that there's a lot of code that you'll write hundreds of thousands of times, but you should never assume that just because you've written uh, uh, an index controller or crud controllers hundreds of times that that isn't where the bug is it's like yes you've written uh, an index controller in rails hundreds of times so my bug obviously isn't there because you know because i've done it so many times you shouldn't assume it instead you should write a test and then prove that your assumption is like okay in fact it's not in the index controller and i find myself definitely being a little overconfident at times. It's like, uh, you know, I've written a React component hundreds of times. And I was like, why do I need to test those things? But I think sometimes you need to check your ego at the door and just write tests. You know, there's nothing wrong with just um, proving your assumptions are correct. Sometimes it's hard to like put all of the prerequisites together in the exact way you need to, to prove something like that. And half the time, that's why I get lazy and blaming like, Oh, that's not even possible Mm -hmm. because it's like, I don't want to go through and write the extra database fixtures to actually mimic the exact situation. And it's like, this is going to take me 45 minutes to prove. And I know I'm right. And I have that kind of like blind confidence. But when I take the 45 minutes to write the fixtures and actually mock that specific scenario, there's often something that I didn't realize and there's often something that I didn't think through that is creating that type of a situation. Yeah, and so the quote I have here is, routine code isn't infallible. Did you test all the edge cases? And so that sort of just reminds you like, hey, you know, just because you do something a ton doesn't mean that you're always gonna be 100% right. Absolutely. Um, there's a debugging checklist that I think is pretty cool. So I'm just gonna just gonna read off what their like suggestion. Yeah, is. let's blow through it. Yeah, yeah. This is so. This is straight from out of the book, and this is kind of recommendations when jumping into debugging. Yeah. So when you want to debug, 
Here's a little checklist. Just think to yourself, one, is the problem being reported a direct result or an underlying bug, or is it merely a symptom? Two, is the bug really in the compiler? Is it in the operating system? Is it in your code? So just be wary, like, where could this bug possibly be coming from? Three, if you explain this problem in detail to a coworker, what would you say? And I think being able to, like, articulate um, why a bug is happening can sometimes help you, you know, solve where that bug is. Four, if the suspect code passes its unit tests, are the tests complete enough? And five, do the conditions that cause this bug exist anywhere else in the system? And so these are, I think, like a pretty good set of questions that you can ask yourself when you're trying to debug. Yeah, I think the biggest takeaway for me is like try to duplicate the problem in tests, like actually set the situations and make sure you have the exact data coming in. That was a previous tip that was like, if someone's reporting a bug, know exactly the situation that's causing that bug. And unfortunately, that even comes down to browser and emulating that browser um, and really understanding exactly how it's rendering on their side and what that looks like. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's uh, talk about the next tip, which is actually kind of a segue. There's no like good segue for this because it doesn't really relate much to what we've been talking about. Uh, but, number, but tip number three is learn a text manipulation language. So examples of text manipulation might be like generating web docs or um, test data generation or like even writing a book. Um, so this might just like literally has to deal with text. And funny enough, the author suggests learning something like Ruby or Perl or something that's like, quote unquote, an easy language, not something because like you wouldn't want to like write you know, a program to generate web documentation using like Java, for example, that would like be painful, which is funny because I use Ruby for, for everything for <laughs> not just, and not just text <laughs> manipulation, but this is the idea about this is to learn like something that's like short and sweet has like concise syntax, um, where you can just like quickly hack something together, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I've been wanting to push more into this because I've like barely experimenting with things like self-creating API docs and like pulling out things. So like I was sitting down to write, so I have a web app for a client project and we're moving toward doing a mobile app and I need to do an API. So I was like exploring, you know, how do I want to do this? Do I want to do this in GraphQL? Do I want to do this standard REST? Like how do I want to approach this and kind of what do I want to learn next and how do I want to do that in my day job? And so I just wanted to know like how many objects do I have and what are some of my custom methods against it? So I literally wrote a quick Ruby rake task that just literally pulls all that out into a CSV spreadsheet. And to me, like that's not exactly what they're saying as far as learn a text manipulation language, but it is an example of something that can be super helpful because then I was able to just kind of have a spreadsheet, kind of have a global view of all my custom objects with their custom methods and just start playing around with that. And so literally just this last week, I started playing with that and it really got my brain thinking more. There's a lot of libraries that exist that do this, but I think it would be kind of a good practice for me to play with it a little bit more and maybe grab one of the libraries and adapt it more. But there's a lot of libraries that like take your existing code and kind of automatically create docs, at least stub them out for you so that you can kind of fill in the detail and keep them up to date. So you can like run a rake task and it kind of updates all those different objects and the reference sources to them. And like even down to pulling out, like if there's a comment above a method, it'll actually format that as markdown and put it alongside your method. Right now, JP is muted and he is sneezing so violently. I've never seen someone sneeze so violently. Anyway, that segues really well into the next tip, which is write code that writes code. And so it's tangentially related into this idea of there's a lot of these libraries that kind of self-write your docs from your code. So they write that code from your backend code and kind of turn that into something that's usable in the front end. 
But this is even more into that. So JP, you want to help us push more into the concept of writing code that writes code as a tip? Yeah, sure. So the first thing I think of, of writing code that writes code is like metaprogramming, which is funny because I have this book right next to me called Metaprogramming 2 in Ruby. I haven't yet. You have a book for every topic <laughs> sitting on your desk. <laughs> um, I love it. I haven't I haven't gone through it yet, but it's just, it. It's I think... I don't know, because this section also was explicitly like, hey, this doesn't have to be about metaprogramming. It's sort of just about automating your process a little bit. Because yeah. and this can this could also be about, you know, writing factory methods that write code for you instead of having to like do all that stuff and you know copy and paste and do those things manually. Um so I think I think the the main point for write code that writes code is to just be a little bit cl- more clever or to be a little bit smarter about how you write code so that you're not always duplicating things um so there's two different types of like code generation or like meta meta code meta programming um, there's passive which you run once and it generates some results so this could this might be something like a document generator so that's like passive because you just run it once and you get all of your your docs and there's also something called active code generation so this is this is run every time you need a result so results might be thrown away but you might also be you know, running this active code generation multiple times versus like passive where you only run it once. Isn't active record technically active code generation generating SQL on the back end? Oh, shoot. Wow, that like blew my mind a little bit. Is that why it's called like, is that why they have like active prepended to a couple of these rails? Maybe. Things? I don't know if that's why active's in the name, but I know that it's like, it's also in a way like a service layer, but what it's actually doing under the hood is just writing SQL right. statements in different ways based on your active record queries. So I'm talking about in Ruby, there's a layer called active record, which is the ORM that handles the middleware, if you're not familiar with it. And there's other libraries like that, but I think that's what that is. And I've never really thought about it that way as being an active code. I mean, in, I mean, most DSLs are actually code that writes code, right? Because I mean, you know, in copy sure. bar, it's not like fill in is like actual it's like, I mean, that's, that, that's yeah. doing something behind the scenes to fill in like an input, for example. Um, wow, I cool. just, I guess in reading this tip originally, I didn't realize how pervasive it is. Cause like, I'm even, as I'm talking, like an ERB template is a code generation, right, 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 right. active code generator. Like, like everything I write in a lot of ways, anything that's not straight Ruby or I, some of my Ruby even <laughs> is generating code generators. So yeah, that's interesting how much we're already doing this in a way, which is, it's just interesting. But I like what you were saying about like, it doesn't have to be something as hardcore as creating a clone of active record or you know, something that hardcore of metaprogramming. It could also just be more being more elegant in the way that you're writing code. So in talking about recently writing some uh, API methods, I found myself doing a lot of JSON returns that were like 500 in the hard coded response. And I was like, wow, this could just be a nice little method, which is return response with the code and then the string. So like now I have a nice little method that just is return response, whatever HTTP code I want, and then the string that goes along with it, if there's a custom string. And then I'm able to build on top of that method to do a lot more things. And so instead of having this same chunk of JSON all over my controllers and endpoints, I just have this nice little method. And if I need to update the way that my system is responding globally, I can just update that one method and updates it in every place. So in a way, like that's a really simple generator that's generating the right JSON response right there in my controller. And there's so many opportunities to this, the more you look. Yeah, it's, um, I always turn to like metaprogramming, but you're right. There's like so many opportunities to write code that writes code. In fact, if you're, 
if you're listening to this and you're big on like React and Redux, a lot of Redux is like boilerplate and that's probably one of the biggest complaints, but there are definitely ways to reduce, no pun intended, reduce that boilerplate by writing code generation or like by writing code that writes code for you instead, uh, which is pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, another one that I've been really trying to lean on lately in the Ruby world, and I'm sure that there's other other different ways you can pick this up in other languages, but kind of a concept of like using the model name within my methods. So for example, I, I had a, a really interesting use where I had a lot of different of this. So I had in the same interface, a lot of different objects that needed to be CRUD in the same interface. So, you know, there's kind of an index of mixed different types of models within the same index. And initially they all used their own controller methods for every single action. So, you know, clicking on item A would render controller A, clicking on item B would render controller B. But I was working with a fellow Rubyist on this project and he introduced this kind of this global find resource method. So he literally switches on the model. So model.findID params ID. And so we took all of these eight different, there was literally eight different controller methods that were finding this resource that was the find resource. So kind of like, you know, before create find item, we just do a find resource call. And for every different resource in this index, it's using the same method. And so we literally reduced like a good 60 lines of code right off the bat into the single very elegant find resource method. And I was, you know, at, I was at RailsConf and there was something similar that was using the idea of um, polymorphism, that you can have an association with different types of objects by essentially referencing in the table what model it's associated with, the actual model name, and then the ID of that model name. And like you immediately remove like eight associations if you have eight items associated with one other type of item. And so it's really elegant way to reduce the amount of code you're writing. It's not necessarily exactly related to the idea that code that writes code, but it's still trying to think more elegantly about how you can make your code think harder and still simply and still modular and write less code. Sweet. That's really cool. I'm looking at this method that you wrote, find resource in, in our Yeah, notes, I put it in the notes and it's in the show which notes. Which is, uh, wow, that is really cool. Um, for those of you who don't know what polymorphism is, maybe we'll do uh, Sandy Metz Pooter next because there's definitely a section on polymorphism. Oh, I would love to do that book in this format. That'd be awesome. But we kind of depend on our listeners. Very true. Books, so know that I will be lobbying for that book <laughs> as we're going through a Pragmatic Programmer, which by the way, has been an awesome choice. I've been loving this book. Speaking of, that wraps up this chapter. That was a super quick blow through, which is great. Um, what's your pick for this week? What do you got, JP? Okay, so my pick is a little bit different than usual, and it's classical music, because I really like listening to classical music when I'm sometimes like coding, which sounds really cliche and, and dumb, <laughs> but like, or, or, you know, if I'm like reading something or if I'm just, you know, I don't want to be, I just want to tune out, but it's really hard finding good classical music because... I don't know. There's something about like not all classical music satiates my thirst for wanting to listen to something that's just like instrumental, but I've ran across this guy and I'm probably going to butcher this name because all these classical artists have these crazy, insane European last names that I don't know how they're supposed to be pronounced, but it's Sergei Rachmaninoff. I, I don't know. That's as that's as best as I can probably say it. But <laughs> but but in particular, the album or concerto. I don't know. I don't think they're albums. The records, their EPs, whatever. It's piano concerto number two and three. And I think these are pretty solid listens when you want to listen to some classical music. Awesome. I'll have to check those out. 
I don't do a lot of classical music, but I should more because there's something that's very calming about it. But yeah. It still has a nice energy to it where oftentimes I'm doing like death grips and run the jewels and it's not very calming. <laughs> <laughs> What's your pick? Uh, so my pick for this week is actually a hidden iOS feature. So I am a huge fan of Android and I generally use Android, but I've been using iOS lately because um, I'm just testing iOS apps and there was a couple different things. I was like, ah, okay, I'm going to switch back to iOS for a while just because I want to make sure this testing. So this hidden feature blew my mind from not only a design, design standpoint, but I use it multiple times a day. And so this is the feature and you may already know about it and maybe it's not mind blowing for people who are more iOS users, but I was like, like, this is so awesome. So basically, if you are in a text box, so like if you are writing text in a text box and you need to select a word or move your cursor to fix a spelling error, you have to do this thing where you like hold down on the text and this magnifying glass shows up and on an Android, it's that like blue little cursor. But this is the tip. If you have an iPhone success or newer, you just push hard on the keyboard and it instantly becomes a cursor that's like almost like a mouse. Like you literally have a touchpad cursor to exactly move this to where you like literally get your phone out if you're not driving and try <laughs> this. And it's so mind blowing and so helpful and makes it so much easier to enter, especially like a big body of text. Cause you literally can go like up and down in the lines and like pick the exact spot with this cursor and your fat font thumb is not covering up the text. And it's, it's an awesome tip and people don't know it. And I've been trying to spread the good news because it is totally mind blowing. That's funny. Yeah. It makes your, it makes it uh, like a trackpad on your keyboard. And I actually found about this recently too. And I was like, wow, how have I, how do you, how do you live life without this? <laughs> like but it's such a good little tweak. I also have one more pick that I really, really can't wait for next week. Throw it in. I, throw I have it in. to say it. Um, I, I, I tweeted, I retweeted someone named Sarah. I can't pronounce her last name, so I'm just not going to say it, but she posted this thing called make front and shit again dot party. And it's this website that is really hilarious and it's basically like it it looks like it was made in 1998 and it has like really terrible animations it uses like html's like blink um i'm sure if i turn my music on there would be like terrible music <laughs> playing in the background but it's funny because when you scroll down enough it's like remember when front end was fun remember ftp remember blink <laughs> remember html remember jquery and it's just like a ton of terrible animations and and really bad graphics. I don't know. It I I saw this and was like, this is I need to make my portfolio look like this. What was that URL again? Make front end shit dot party? Make front end shit again dot party. <laughs> That's awesome. I got to check that out. That sounds great. Okay. One last thing I want to talk about before we hang up and say goodbye to our listeners for the week. I just put a link to a tweet in the little chat thing within our Hangouts window that we're using to record this show. A little inside baseball there. It's a tweet that I tweeted out a couple days ago. Okay. I was working with color and I had a hex code for a color in Sketch. And then I go over to Coolers, which is should be a pick, coolers.co, which is C-O-O-L-O-R-S, which helps you like build color palettes and play with different color palettes. And I realized they were completely different colors. They're four shades off from each other. And then I opened up a Safari window to the same site, and it's again a different color. On the same monitor, the same OS, the same computer, Sketch, Chrome and Safari literally render colors that to my eye are completely different colors. 
Have you experienced this? And how the hell do I avoid this? Recently, actually at the Ruby meetup, I was helping Eric with his portfolio. And we, for some reason, were doing something that had to do with green in particular. I don't, maybe it's green. I'm, I'm sure it's all colors. But we were looking at some CSS. And for whatever reason, we had like different browsers open. And also because like, I think some text editors show you like a little snippet of what the color is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they do and, in the text editor sometimes. And we were like, why is this hex code different shades of green and we just were like that's weird and then we didn't figure it out so that's my little take on it i just we don't i don't well, know that's helpful <laughs> <laughs> but no but like i'm going crazy because it's the same os it's the same monitor like i totally get like an android phone versus an iphone or two monitors like yeah sure i totally get that but the idea that it's on the same screen like browser windows next to each other rendering and they're totally different like from a brand perspective to be nitpicky like these colors have a very different feel one is very energetic one is very calming and it's like very different especially the two one that's in sketch and the one that's in chrome and i know that has to do with color spaces but it's like i feel like this should render globally and i don't know why more people aren't more angry about this maybe they're the same colors but it's one of those like optical illusions where the no way. No way. Oh, and the worst part is if I take this screenshot that I tweeted, I'll put it in the show notes. If I take this screenshot and put it in sketch and use the eyedropper tool, uh-huh. they all say the same color. Right, 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 right. See, I, I think- it- But that's even more fucked because how can they render so differently? That's a good question. But I was scrolling through the Facebook feed recently and our good old CFO from Wins Tutor shared this post. Okay. Um where it's basically like an eye trick where you think that colors are different. I sent it in the little chat thing. Yeah, you yeah, think yeah. Two, two shades of gray are different. Well, also like the dress, you know. Right, right, whole. right. Okay, but you think two shades of gray, gray are different. Yeah, you think two shades of gray are different, but because they're separated by like a harsh shade of white and a harsh shade of black. But when you like actually cover those two shades, like with your finger, those two shades of gray are actually the same. Whoa, that's really trippy. Yeah, literally just put your finger in the middle of the picture and they're the same color. But I do that with this tweet. They're not the same color. Yeah. <laughs> so They're not. They're definitely not. One is very calming. One is very electric. There's, they're not the same color. Am I crazy? Maybe this is a new dress 2.0. I don't know. Yeah. I'll put all the links to this in the show notes so that you guys can see this because it's like it's breaking my brain as far as color. <laughs> yeah, it's like a it's a, it's, a, it's the blue blue and white dress all over again, which is actually <laughs> yeah. white and gold. It's black and gold. Yeah, black and gold. <laughs> all right. Thanks for listening this week. It was happy to I'm happy to be with you guys and to share through this awesome book. Excited to jump into chapter four next week chapter right? four yeah. yeah the first yeah first chapter four tips. part two we'll go through the first couple tips of chapter four you can find our website at iterationpodcast.com which you can now visit either admitting the www or not <laughs> i didn't have naked redirection on which is very noob of me uh if you are listening in itunes or anywhere else i would love it if you would drop a review it totally helps us to like boost in the searches and Share the podcast with a friend. You know, if you have someone who's wanted to learn development or a Rubyist or JavaScript guy or even a senior dev, whatever, you know, someone who has lots of money at Google who wants to just pay us money, that's great too. Just to talk about what doing. No, uh, I'm going to go ahead and call it quits. I will talk to you guys next time. All right. Thanks so much for listening. Mm-hmm.